chapter 31. We'll be looking at verses 36 to 55. Okay, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace. Thank you for sending Jesus into this world that we might have eternal life. Father, as we open your word now, I just pray that we might be doers of it and not hearers only. That uh, we would learn from the life of Jacob that which we need in our own lives. And as I think of today's lesson in particular, I think about how he was commendable for um, being angry and yet not sinning. Being so long-suffering with his father-in-law and Uncle Laban. And I pray, that Lord, that we might emulate his behavior in this chapter with those who might be difficult people in our lives. May we be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath, for we know that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. We know, Lord, that the tongue is a fire which no man can tame. So help us, Lord, to use our tongues wisely as fountains of sweet water to edify people, to lift people up. And if we do have righteous indignation, help us, as I said before, to be angry in a righteous way and yet not to sin. And Father, help us to remember that we should let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, each of us should esteem others better than ourselves. Father, now go before us and teach us through your Holy Spirit, for we do pray in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. With this lesson, which I have entitled the Mitzpah Pact, which, as I said, is going to be taken from Genesis 31, verses 36 to 55, we come to the end of Jacob's long 20-year experience in the school of hard knocks with Uncle Laban. Um, Uncle Laban was his teacher, and we could say that God was the headmaster. Jacob had learned during those 20 years many much-needed lessons. He learned lessons about reaping and sowing. He learned a lot of lessons about humility. He learned lessons about himself. And he learned lessons about God while he was enlisted in that school. But, of course, he, he hadn't learned everything he needed to know, but God was ready for him to graduate and to move on. It was time for Jacob to cease being a servant of Laban outside of the land of promise, and it was time for him to begin to concentrate on raising his family for the service of God and the special purpose which God had for his family in the land of promise. Now, in our lesson last week, Jacob made his permanent break from Haran, you know, the the village, the town of Haran. In this present lesson, we're going to see that he makes his permanent break from Laban. Now, he had already thought that he had done that, but what happened? Laban had very angrily, when he found out that Jacob had packed up and moved out, he very angrily chased him down and overtook him in the hills of Gilead. That's what we looked at in chapter 31, verse 23. And what could have been a very tragic ending for Jacob was prevented by divine intervention when God Almighty warned Laban in a dream that he was not to harm Jacob. That was in verse 24. Now, although Laban's greedy plan to take everything 
from Jacob and possibly harm or even slay him, that plan was hindered, and although his uh, evil plan to seek vengeance on Jacob for having stolen away from him unawares was also hindered, yet we found that Laban did manage uh, to vent some of his wrath on Jacob verbally. He accused him of having stolen his daughters as captives, which was absolutely ridiculous, you know, even at sword point. And he accused Jacob of having foolishly deprived him of the privilege, and here he was such a hypocrite, the privilege of throwing a big farewell party for him. He also accused him of uh, foolishly preventing him from kissing goodbye, you know, to his family. But his worst accusation of all, at least from Jacob's perspective, was that Laban accused him of having stolen what? His idols, his household gods. That was, I mean, that, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, as far as Jacob was concerned, because he was not an idol worshiper. He worshiped the one and only true God, and he would not have such idols, such gods um, in his possession. They were abominations and an affront to God, so he would not in any way have stolen them. So he was indignant. What he didn't know (laughs) was that, in part, that accusation was true. Because, you know, when you're married, you're one flesh. So, in effect, he had stolen them because his wife, Rachel, had stolen her father's household gods. Well, that's all I'm going to give by way of introduction. Our outline for today's lesson, you can see here, we're going to cover three primary um, divisions. We'll look at the protest of Jacob. Then we'll look at the peace pact, which he and Laban make together. And then we'll um, conclude with... I forgot it. It's not up there. Can you put a little part three? What in the world happened to me? I guess I did that at midnight. So um, part three should be the parting. And that'll be verse 55. So the protest, the peace pact, and the parting. <clears throat> Following Laban's search of the tents of Jacob's encampment, in which he came forth without having found the gods that he had accused Jacob of stealing, or anything else for that matter. You know, Jacob said, well, see if you find anything else that might belong to you. Well, what happened? Laban came up totally empty-handed. So after his search, Jacob, we find, was at the end of his patience with this man. He had suffered in silence for many, many years, and he had, as you can imagine, he had a lot of pent-up emotion, which now finally erupted. As we consider Jacob's words now of angry protest, which we find in verses 36 to 41, we're going to look, first of all, at his righteous indignation toward Laban. And then secondly, we're going to look in verse 42 at his righteous inclusion of God. In our look at Jacob's speech of righteous indignation toward Laban, we're going to see that he was indignant toward Laban concerning three areas. He was indignant toward him for having been fervently chased, you know, chased down like like he was a criminal. He was indignant toward him for having... Uh, falsely charged him as a thief, and he was also indignant toward Laban for having been financially cheated. So we're going to look 
at his three indignations concerning being chased, being charged, and being cheated. We're going to begin with his concern over having been chased. And for this, let's look at verse 36 of Genesis chapter 31. It says, And Jacob was wroth and chowed with Laban. We don't use those kind of words, do we? Wroth and chowed. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that thou hast so hotly pursued after me? <clears throat> As you can see here, 20 years of, of restrained frustration and anger and resentment were compressed in Jacob's protest of these verses. And by the way, verses 36 to 42 form... Jacob's single longest speech in the whole book of Genesis. Actually, the whole Bible. This is his longest speech here. Jacob demanded, by way of his two questions that we find in this verse, what is my trespass and what is my sin, he demanded that Laban make it clear to him just exactly what he was charging him with, you know, that he had so hotly pursued after him. What is my sin? That you have come after me like this, like as if I was some kind of a, uh, a criminal. We're told that he was wroth, which in the Hebrew literally means that he burned. He was hot. He was hot with anger. And we're also told that he chode with Laban. And the word there in Hebrew means to seize or to tear. He was, you know, literally ready to seize Laban and tear him up. He was so angry. Now, he didn't do that, but he was, he was that hot to trot. Now, when we take into consideration, can you imagine how hot you'd be after all that Laban had done to him for 20 years? I mean, the, the wedding night trickery alone when he gave him the wrong wife would have made most men kill the guy probably back in those days. But when we really think about and consider how angry Jacob was, we really find that his words were very restrained. You know, a normal, ungodly man would have included a lot more venom and nastiness in his vocabulary than what we find here from Jacob. He was angry, but he, he sinned not. He was angry, but he expressed himself in such a way that he did not sin. And isn't that what we're supposed to do? It's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> The tongue is a flame, it's a fire. And as I said in the prayer, no man can tame it. In this case, you know, Jacob isn't usually commendable, but here he is. We uh, find that he really, he really um, spoke, he was hot, but he spoke well. The truth. He stuck with the truth, and he did not resort to name-calling um, or cursing or any kind of physical violence because uh, uh, he had learned a lot in the school of hard knocks up there in Haran. Okay, so that was his indignation concerning being chased. Let's look at his indignation concerning being charged. And for this, we look at verse 37. He goes on speaking and he says, Whereas thou hast searched all my stuff, what hast thou found of all thy household stuff? Set it here before my brethren and thy brethren, that they may judge betwixt us both. Here he asks a third question. He wants to know what it was that Laban found as he searched through all his stuff. And the Hebrew word that Jacob used for searched indicates, again, that he was very indignant 
about his father-in-law's lack of trust in him and his, you know, rude rummaging through all of their personal belongings. What, Jacob wanted to know, what had Laban found? You know, Laban had openly, in front of both of their families, he had openly accused Jacob of stealing. So where was the evidence? You know, where were the stolen goods? Jacob wanted Laban to put the stolen goods down, you know, in front of the family and all the household witnesses, meaning the servants, and uh, let them judge between the two of them. Was Jacob a thief or was Laban a false accuser? Well, after having come up empty-handed... You know, after his search through Jacob's campsite, not only his tent, but Leah's tent and Rachel's tent and the handmaid's tent, he didn't find what he was looking for. Was it there? It was there, but he he didn't know that. I think he really thought it was there because it was missing, and it was missing at the same time Jacob departed. So I believe he really knew somebody had it, but uh, all he could do at this point, since he didn't find it, was maintain an embarrassing silence. And his silence triggered Jacob to continue. It was at long last, after 20 years, it was an opportunity for Jacob to set the record straight before witnesses, you know, before both sides of the family. And so that's exactly what he did. He went on, and in verses 38 to 41, he was indignant concerning having having been cheated. So let's look at verses 38 to 41. He says, This twenty years have I been with thee. Thy ewes and thy she-goats have not cast their young. In other words, they have not miscarried. And the rams of thy flock have I not eaten. That which was torn of beasts I brought not unto thee. I bear the loss of it. Of my hand didst thou require it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was in the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from mine eyes. Thus have I been twenty years in thy house. I served thee fourteen years for thy two daughters and six years for thy cattle. And thou hast changed my wages ten times. You think he could have been a little more angry than that? I mean, he's just telling the truth, isn't he? Well, in addition to lashing back at Laban for having been fervently chased like a criminal... And having been falsely charged as a thief, Jacob went on to express his frustration over having been financially cheated. Not only was he cheated as Laban's chief shepherd, but he also had been cheated as Laban's son-in-law. In verse 38, it is really as though Jacob was saying, You know, Laban, the more I think about it, you are the one who stole from me. For 20 years, the the 20 years that I have been with you, your flocks have done exceedingly well. And was that true? They had. He says, your ewes and your she-goats, the female, you know, lambs and the female goats, had not cast their young. They didn't, under Jacob's care, they did not miscarry. And that was a very common occurrence. You know, under the care of less careful, less concerned shepherds, many young would be miscarried. But he says he didn't lose a one. None of them were miscarried. Furthermore, he said, in essence, I have not even used any of your rams, any of your livestock, 
for my own food. And that was also considered the right of shepherds, you know, to eat some of the flocks, especially if they were away from their home overnight, you know, or gone for any extended period of time. They were allowed to eat some of the, the, um, the livestock. So Jacob had been an excellent shepherd. All that the father-in-law had given to him, he lost none, <laughs> we could say. He was an excellent shepherd. And, as we've mentioned repeatedly, he was a very conscientious, ethical worker. He had not cheated or stolen at all from Laban, even in ways which were, um, you know, in that culture, would have been found acceptable, like eating some of the livestock. Well, he went on then in verse 39 to also mention the fact that as Laban's chief shepherd... He himself had borne the cost of any losses due to attacks by wild animals. He did this even though under traditional Near Eastern law, the shepherd was not to be held responsible for any losses which were incurred from attacks of wild beasts as long as that shepherd could prove that he didn't take that animal for himself. As long as it says, like, in, for example, in Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, it says that if the shepherd could bring evidence, such as a torn carcass, that the animal had been attacked, you know, then, then he was not held accountable for that animal. In fact, in some places, the tradition was that the shepherd was held liable for the animal if it was attacked or stolen during the day, but the owner suffered the loss if one of his animals was attacked during the night. However, Jacob is saying here to Laban, all losses, whether day or night, um, were borne by him, by Jacob, during his 20 years of shepherding Laban's flocks. Laban suffered absolutely no loss at all. So he had cheated, you see, he had cheated Jacob out of more than just his wages because really Laban should have been compensating Jacob in extra special ways for having been such an excellent, superb shepherd. But he didn't. Well, speaking of, the she- of his uh, shepherding days, reminded Jacob about the hard work that it was. So he decided he would also mention how faithfully he had done his job without wages, even in the worst of conditions, you know, through intensely hot days and and intensely or exceedingly cold nights, which accurately describes the weather conditions of that part of the world. He said that he faithfully watched over Laban's flocks, even spending many sleepless nights to ensure their safety. Well, not only had Laban then been a miserly and an inequitable employer, but he had been dishonest. Although Jacob had always, always fulfilled his end of every bargain that the two of them had ever made, ever made, you know, even working those 14 wageless years for a wife that he didn't really even want. But notice he doesn't mention that. Why do you think in this whole speech, this protest of indignation, righteous indignation, he never mentions that he had been cheated with Leah? Because he was, he was concerned for Leah. Just like he was concerned for his sheep, he was concerned for his, his wives. And he said nothing about that so that it would not hurt Leah. So he had not only been cheated um, or had been miserly concerning the work, but um, also Laban 
Anyway, I don't know what I'm saying. But he had also adjusted and altered his wages ten times. Remember, he worked 14 years for no wages. And then when he did work for wages for those six years, uh, Laban kept changing the contract, didn't he? And did he ever do it so that it would benefit Jacob? No, whenever he changed the wages, it was always so that it would benefit him. So anyway, the bottom line is that Jacob was making the point that Laban was the thief, not him. The Lord, however, had had other plans for Jacob, even though Laban you know, tried to cheat him over and over and over again. The Lord intervened in the situation to, um, to cause Jacob to prosper. No matter what Laban did to him, no matter how many times he tried to change things around to his own advantage, God always managed to prosper Jacob. So with the mention of the Lord's intervention, which was at the, uh, well, no, it's in verse 42. That's what we're going to jump into now where he's going to mention the Lord's intervention. With this, we come to the second, put the outline back up here. We come to the second division under the protest, and this is where Jacob talks about the right, a righteous inclusion of God. He remembers God in all of this that he has gone through. So let's look at verse 42. And this is a wonderful verse here. Wonderful. And it's true for you and I as well. It, he says, Except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely thou hadst sent me away now empty. God hath seen mine affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked thee yesternight. There he's speaking, of course, about the dream that Laban had the night before. Jacob spoke to Laban the words that they both knew were true. Everything he has said, they both know, bottom line, were true. He told him that, uh, here he told him that if it was not for God's presence and God's protection of him, Laban had every intention of sending him away empty. That was true. Jacob knew that was true, and Laban knew it was true. Jacob knew that Laban and his sons had probably already been planning how they could take everything that he had away from him. And their hot pursuit of him after they discovered that he had secretly stolen away from them, that only confirmed that they were indeed after his possessions. I have a feeling they would not only have taken his possessions, but I believe they would have taken his family as well, the daughters and the grandchildren back with them. So his, Jacob's last statement there where he says, except the God of my father had been with me, surely thou hadst sent me away now empty. That we could say is really a summary of the whole story of Jacob's life while he was in Haran. Unless God had been with him, he would have left there empty. Actually, we could say that that verse could be a summary of Jacob's whole life. And you know what? We could actually also say that that verse could be a summary of our lives as well. Because apart from God being with us, we would all be sent away from this world. How? Totally empty. Laban is a picture of the world. He is a picture of the way of the world's evil. 
It will work you, this world and its, its usurping God with a small g, Satan, will work you for all it can get out of you. And then it will cast you out empty-handed. It will use you for its own gain. It will cheat you at every turn. It will change its rules so that it always has the advantage, caring nothing at all about you. And it will chase you down if you attempt to escape its clutches. Without the intervention of the Lord God, not one person would escape, would they? None of us, no one. Not one person would ever enter into the promised land. Just like Jacob, without God. So Laban, you see, as the world, and also think about um, Egypt and Pharaoh. There's a lot of similarities between Jacob's exodus from Laban and Israel's exodus from Egypt. Remember now, Jacob is a picture of Israel. He's a prophetic picture in type of Israel. There are many, many comparisons here. Just to name a few, let me tell you a few. The Lord saw all that Laban that, that Laban had done to Jacob. We're told that in verse 12 of 31. The Lord saw. Did he not also see the affliction of his people in Egypt when they were under cruel ta- taskmasters? Also, except the Lord had been with Jacob, he would have been sent away from Laban. How? Empty. God also saw to it that Israel did not leave Egypt empty. Apart from God, she would have left Egypt empty, even after having served as Egypt's slaves for not 20 years, but about 400 years. But yet she would have left empty. But God saw to it that she didn't. She left with much prosperity. Also, we find that it was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're told that in verse 42 here. Who preserved and freed Jacob from Laban, right? He's the one who got Jacob away from Laban. It was also the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It tells us in Exodus 3, 6, who preserved and freed Israel from Egypt. Also, when Laban discovered, remember this, when Laban discovered Jacob's departure from him, what had he done? He pursued after him angrily in hot pursuit, and it says he overtook him. Well, what happened with Israel? When Pharaoh was told that Israel had fled, he took his chariots and all of his horsemen, and he pursued after them in hot anger, did he not? And he overtook them. And then, if it had not been for a miraculous intervention to protect Jacob from Laban, what would have happened? Laban would have been probably slain. And everything taken from him. Same thing with Israel. If God had not miraculously intervened by, you know, the Red Sea opening up and then covering up all the chariots, Israel would have been taken back captive to, um, to Pharaoh to serve again as slaves. And then once safe from Laban, we'll find in this lesson, Jacob and his family worship God. They praise God. They thank God for his deliverance. And we find that the same thing happens in Exodus chapter 15. Once Israel is safe from Pharaoh and his army, they, they sing praises and they worship God together under Moses. So there's a lot of similarities there. 
Anyway, so Laban is a picture of the world just as Egypt is a picture of the world, Pharaoh is a picture of the world, and he did all that he could do, all of them did all they could do to um, prevent God's people from going into the promised land. And that's exactly what Satan is all about with, with people yet today. He's the world, Satan is all about trying to prevent people from going into the promised land. And this is only possible for any of us to get to the promised land by God's intervention, right? So except the God of my father had been with us, surely all of us would have been sent away empty. We would go into a Christless, godless, empty darkness, empty eternity in hell. So Laban was an evil devil of a man and his true character was exposed by Jacob for all who were gathered before them from both of their camps I mean even you know his sons are hearing all this and his daughters are hearing all this and his grandchildren are hearing all this so his true character is being exposed what Jacob had said was all true and there really wasn't much of anything that Laban could say to dispute it instead then Laban is such He's so crafty. Instead of defending himself here, because there was nothing he could say in his defense, what he does is he says something which only further demonstrates to us his perverted thinking. He... um, he says, he says that in verse 43, and then he goes on to propose a peace pact. So as, as we will see as we study this peace agreement that Laban proposes, he doesn't mention anything at all about uh, asking for forgiveness. There's no words of repentance. There's no, there's no asking of forgiveness. And isn't that what he should have done? After all that he had done that was wrong, but we don't read one word about it. We just read this ridiculous statement of verse 43, and then he goes on to, um, to make a peace, try to make a peace pact. And even in that proposition, he is not doing it for any good reason at all except to protect himself. So we're going to move on and look at the peace pact. And under this second division of our outline, which covers verses 43 to 54, we're going to cover five subtopics. We're going to look at the proposal of the peace pact, the pillar of the peace pact, the pile of the peace pact, the purpose of the peace pact, and the pledge of the peace pact. So let's begin with the proposal for it in verses 43 and 44. Now listen to what Laban says after this protest, this true protest from Jacob. He says, And Laban answered and said unto Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and these cattle are my cattle, and all that thou seest is mine. Isn't that something? Has he changed it all? (laughs) And he says, And what can I do this day unto these my daughters, or unto their children which they have borne? And then in verse 44 he says, Now therefore come thou, let us make a covenant, I and thou. And let it be for a witness between me and thee. What a man. What a hypocrite. With God's warning in the dream, you know, the night before, and then with his vain search for the stolen household gods, and now, the latest thing being Jacob's very forceful speech of protest, Laban was like a fox caught in a trap. He was beaten. The tables had turned around completely, and now he was put in the position of being on the defense instead of the offense. Uh, 
So he needed, he knew he needed to do something quickly to save face, you know, to cover up his embarrassment, his shame. Since there was nothing, as I said, that he could say by way of denial to any of Jacob's claims and charges, because they had all been true, what he did here was uh, he just simply avoided mentioning any of Jacob's facts. (laughs) Should have been a politician. He didn't even talk about, you know, don't bother me with the facts. He didn't bring, he didn't talk about anything that Jacob had mentioned. Instead, you know what he did? You know what he really did? He changed the subject. (laughs) It apparently never occurred to him that he might admit his guilt and ask for forgiveness and repent. It never occurred to him. He he was such an, you know, he was so far from God. He was a self-seeking hypocrite to the very end. He tried here, he tried to shift the blame away from himself as best he could in this pathetic situation. Therefore, Laban made a statement that would really be humorous if it wasn't so sad. He made a claim to absolutely everything that was Jacob's, didn't he? Notice four times he uses the the, um, possessive pronoun my or mine. He says, all the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the cattle, meaning all the livestock, are my livestock. And in case I missed anything, all that you see is mine. That was truly twisted thinking on Laban's part. But it helps us really to understand how self-centered this man was. To him, Jacob, you see, had never been anything more really than a hired servant who worked for him. He never really had any intention whatsoever of letting Jacob keep what he had gained in Haran. Unless, you know, Laban, um, unless Jacob stayed in Haran in a subservient position, then he could have kept what he had. But even then, we know that his sons were uh, coveting how much his flocks had increased. So I think they even would have taken back those flocks. They might have let him keep his wives and his children as long as he stayed there. But if he had insisted on leaving, which he did, Laban had every intention of taking all away from him, even his family, including his family. So we see here that Laban really had a warped sense of ownership, didn't he? And it came from a selfish and greedy heart. You know, we don't own anything, do we? Our children are not our children. They're just ours for a while. We're to be stewards of everything that we have. Because everything really belongs to God. Nothing is ours. However, now that it had been made clear to Laban by God and by Jacob's exposure of him before their families that he had no choice but to surrender everything to Jacob. And this was a hard pill to swallow for him. But now it had been made clear to him. What he did is he tried to divert attention from himself. And he did this once again by trying to make it look like Jacob was the ungrateful one. You know, in effect here, what Laban was suggesting was, or saying to Jacob, was that, you know, um, since everything that you have is mine, Jacob, why aren't you grateful to me? Instead of griping about things, you know, and, and why do you think that I would do anything to hurt my own daughters or their children? You notice throughout this whole thing, he never once, Laban never once refers to Rachel and Leah as Jacob's wives. 
They're always my daughters. Never refers to Jacob's children as Jacob's children. They're always Laban's children. Well, by then offering, in verse 44, to make a covenant to keep peace between the two of them, Laban here was hoping to portray himself as a charitable man, a generous man who was willing to give up his own rights of his family and his cattle and everything else that was his for the cause of peace. He is really something else. He's one of a kind. No, unfortunately, he isn't one of a kind. There's too many Labans out there. The fact of the matter was, however, that old miserly Laban was really proposing a peace pact with Jacob in order to protect himself from losing anything further. The proposed peace pact was not by any means an indication that Laban was repenting. He proposed it out of fear that Jacob, with the power of his God behind him and the power of his father behind him, you know, once he went back to his father, that he might return one day to Haran in order to take vengeance on Laban and take everything that Laban had. So with that in mind, let's consider the peace pact made between Jacob and Laban. And we notice that Jacob... Jacob graciously agreed to this pact. Uh, He did so in order to put the past behind him and to attempt to end things once and for all with his father-in-law on a peaceful note. So again, we find that Jacob is very, very commendable here. This was the best thing really for him to do, not only for his testimony for God, but it was the best thing for him to do, to make peace with his father-in-law for the benefit of his wives and for the benefit of all the children as well. So let's uh, begin talking about the peace pact by looking at the proposal. or That was the proposal. Let's look at the pillar of the peace pact. Did I read it? Yeah, I read it. Okay, now let's look at verse 45, the, um, the pillar of the peace pact. It says, And Jacob took a stone and set it up for a pillar. We find here that although Laban was the one who proposed the peace pact, Jacob, throughout this thing, Jacob is the one who took action. He was the doer. Laban was the talker. Jacob was the the walker, we could say. <laughs> Jacob is always the one who takes action in this whole scene. At, at key points in his life, we've already seen this and we'll see it again, at key points in Jacob's life, he sets up stones as pillars. Um, and they are to serve as memorials or as uh, places of worship to God. Remember, he had erected a stone as a, a pillar where? Back in Bethel. Right, after he had had that dream of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending on the ladder, he had erected a stone and he had anointed it. And uh, he's going to do that again at Bethel in chapter 35, verse 14. And then we're going to find he erects another stone pillar in chapter 35, verse 20, when he puts one on Rachel's grave after Rachel dies. Now, in this chapter with Laban, Jacob knew that their covenant needed to be commemorated by a pillar. The pillar was to serve as, we could say, a pillar of remembrance for both of them and for all their future generations as to this agreement, this covenant that they were making with one another. 
He also wanted to, in addition to the pillar, the stone pillar, Jacob wanted to make a pile of stones or a heap of stones, which was probably erected around the bottom of the the tall stone pillar. So if you can imagine a, a tall stone pillar in the center and then a heap of stones around, I couldn't find a picture of one, but a heap of stones around the bottom of the pillar. So let's look at the pile that he built in verses 46 and 47. And notice, I want you to notice, I might not remember to mention it, but um, Laban doesn't do any of this. This is all done by Jacob and Jacob's family. It says in verse 46, And Jacob said unto his brethren, meaning his sons and his, um, the other men that were with him, he says, Gather stones. And they took stones and made an heap. And they did eat there upon the heap. And Laban called it, but Jacob called it Galead. I like Jacob's name better. <laughs> All right, again, we find that uh, Laban made the proposal, but Jacob does all the work. Since throughout the Bible, we find that two witnesses are needed for the proof of a testimony. It was understandable that Jacob wanted more than one witness in his treaty with Laban. Laban wasn't exactly someone to be trusted. And so he wanted two witnesses to this agreement that they were making. The pillar was to serve as one witness. It was a pillar of remembrance, a memorial pillar to commemorate that day. Whereas the pile of stones, and by the way, this picture is wrong because Laban actually has a stone in his hand. But according to the scripture, it doesn't look like he helped at all. Um, So the the pillar was one witness, and then the pile of stones around the bottom of the pillar, probably, was to serve as an additional witness to this covenant that they were making. Uh, Notice that the eating, oh, that's the right one, the eating upon the heap of stones, which is mentioned at the end of verse 46, that probably refers to the sacrificial meal that concluded this whole covenant ceremony over in verse 54. So if, when we get to verse 40, 54, you're going to see they eat. They didn't eat twice. This just refers to the eating that took place in verse 54. find that both men in their respective mo- 